Hello wrestling fans and welcome to Shut Up and Wrestle, a wrestling history podcast about good conversations and great stories. I am your host, Brian R. Solomon, and this is episode 94, in which I will speak to former WWE creative director Andrew Wilson. I'll get to that in just a second. Before we get to it, I want to mention a few things that I have coming up on the horizon. First of all, in the new issue of Inside the Ropes magazine, which is issue number 39 with L.A. Knight on the cover, I have a piece in there on the history of Starcade, which I wrote on the occasion of the 40th anniversary of the very first Starcade, which is this month. So please do check that out. L.A. Knight on the cover, Inside the Ropes number 39. You can get it at InsideTheRopesMagazine.com. And over at Pro Wrestling Illustrated, the February 2024 issue, believe it or not, which goes on sale, not quite yet, but it goes on sale the week of Thanksgiving. It's got Tony Storm on the cover featuring an interview by yours truly. And it also has a column in there on the legacy of the Von Erich wrestling family, which I wrote on the occasion of the release of the Iron Claw movie, which is happening in December about the rise and fall of the Von Erichs. So I think that you guys will enjoy that. Please check it out in the February issue of PWI, which you'll be able to get starting Thanksgiving week at pwi-online.com. And the last thing I want to mention this week is, I know I've been teasing it for weeks now, but if you're a member of the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, you've seen the news. I have officially begun the writing. That's right, the actual work begins. On Irresistible Force, The Life and Times of Gorilla Monsoon. All the preliminary bouts are out of the way, and we are headed to the main event. Got the whole thing outlined, and I cannot wait to get this all down on paper or down on whatever they put books on these days so that you guys can enjoy it. Stay tuned. More updates to come. But right now, let's get to this week's conversation. Andy is somebody who worked in the creative services department at WWE and the WWF. He was there from about 1994 to, I believe, 2005. And so in this conversation, you're going to hear some interesting stories about the behind the scenes in WWE creatively in terms of the attitude and positioning of the company from a corporate standpoint through the new generation era, really the beginning of it, leading into the Attitude Era and what a lot of those changes were like for people who worked inside Titan Tower. Andy was involved in a lot of the creative initiatives that I think you guys will appreciate when you listen. Things like uh, merchandise design, t-shirts, videotapes, the transition from Coliseum home video, a lot of in-the-weed stuff 
for all of you that are fascinated with the inner workings of the WWF during this period. You're going to enjoy this conversation, and I'm going to take you to it right now. Okay, so it's my pleasure this week on Shut Up and Wrestle to welcome to the show another employee, corporate employee of Titan Tower, another member of the illustrious creative services department that I've talked about so much on here. He was at WWE, then known as WWF, from 1994 through 2005, art director, creative director, at that time the youngest creative director that WWE had. And his name is Andrew Wilson. Andy, thank you so much for coming to the show. Hey, welcome. For I'm happy to be had. Well, it's my pleasure to have you here. Like like we were saying before you started, um, you know, we've had, God, we had Mike Foley. We had Deb Jasway. There have been other members. People love the Deb episode, the stories that she told about Freddie oh, Blassie yeah. and things like that. Um, yep. So, you know, people love to hear these kind of stories like we were saying. And you were there going back. I mean, you're talking now almost 30 years ago. That's a period that, sorry, Andy, that's a period that people, you know, they revere now. They look back on it. I know the business wasn't doing that well, but I mean, that's the new generation era, right? Yes. Yes. I I came in right at the creative starting of uh, WrestleMania. Was it at 11? That's like the... Uh, like the ethereal starburst background. Yes, I think yep. that was eleven, okay. right? Because if you started yeah. in what, like, <laughs> you started in like mid ninety four. Yeah, I started the 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 Monday before Thanksgiving of nineteen ninety four. So I worked two right. days and then had the rest of the week off. <laughs> I replaced this woman named Carol Bukla, who was doing the merchandise catalog. She was in charge of that. My first day was her last day. I happened to answer an ad in the Stanford Advocate paper in the classified section. And it said, you know, call this number. There wasn't an address. It was just call this number to get the address to send your resume to. Wow. Weeding out the marks. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. It was just like. <laughs> you know, entertainment company looking for like graphic designer, something like that. And then a number to call. So I called the number and I talked to Amy Crabtree, who was married to Paul Magliari at the time. So they sort of took to me because my resume was a soup can and it was different. So I you know, when you're creative, you have to always be creative. You're always on, right? So sent that in and somehow got the job. It was a two-week assignment to do a merchandise catalog. And also, Macho Man left Oh yeah, the day that I started. So oh, wow. it was this big <laughs> upheaval. And I'm just like, hey, what's going on? I don't I don't get it because I was not a wrestling fan per se. It's like when I was growing up, the kids on the my neighbors were really big wrestling fans. So 
I knew I knew of Vince and the whole Hulk Hogan thing and WrestleMania one with the rock and wrestling connection and all that sort of stuff. So I was like, it was part of the um, popular culture of the time. You know, everything was on MTV and all that sort of stuff. Right. And then when I got when my, when my wife and I moved to uh, Darien and lived with my grandparents of all people, uh, we I answered that ad after working a bunch of freelance jobs in and around Stanford and Bedford, New York, and had that two week assignment. And I was over in the photo department, which was over where HR was when we were there. Okay. I remember that. that I a, remember their spot this, on the first floor. It was a teeny little room. Yeah. It, it was just, it's just no windows, nothing. <laughs> Why so, would you need any light in the photo department, right? Well, you have light, light tables, you know, you want it dark. True. That's true. Yes. So Good that, point. You know, it made sense. So who, who was who was heading it up at that time? It wasn't it wasn't Noel yet, right? Noel oh, Soper, no. Donna Schmerzler. Okay. And, and what? Yeah, go on. So I was over there getting photos for the merchandise catalog I was working, and I'm talking to Donna, and then this weird guy comes in, like a bowl haircut squeaky voice and it's mike foley <laughs> yeah, yeah he's yeah i didn't know he had his hair like that <laughs> <laughs> his hair's the same now it's just <laughs> a little more gray <laughs> so he started talking i started he just started making jokes of about donna and talking about things that were going on and i just started laughing because he's hilarious and for some reason since I was laughing at his jokes, he's like, oh, hey, who is this guy? And I, he was in the office across from me. And basically the office that I wound up in um, when I was an art director. So Mike sort of took a, a shine to me, I guess, if you will, and hired me. So I, I was able to turn a two-week assignment for a um, catalog into a whole career. Do you remember some of the items that were in that catalog? Oh, geez. Um, I probably have one laying around somewhere. But it's in some box up in the garage. I kept all, I keep all, everything. Oh, I did the same. I have a room here where I have a copy of every single magazine that I ever contributed to, even the ones where I wasn't even writing yet, where I was just a copy editor, every single issue I have here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I re you know, remember going over and talking with the magazine guys. That was Troy Santi and one of Deb's Edward friends. I can't, her name escapes me right now. Okay. That's when Edward Chudy was running the magazine, right? I don't, I don't remember. Or was that. it, or was it Russo? Was Russo doing it? It's already. No, this point. is well before Russo. Russo this is before it. Russo. Okay. Yeah. Um, it was Jane Mahoney. 
Oh yeah, she was the wasn't she the she was she the was, designer the the designer. She, she and Troy were the were the people doing the magazine, and then Linda Nishball ran all the type uh, out of a um, type machine. We even had it. We still had a stat camera. You had no you had the cut it. You had the physical cutting and pasting boards, like the drawing boards, a, still right. A bit of, for for a very for a very short time, but you know most mostly things were on Quark and illustrator and photoshop then but it was like the sort of the early days of it right so we were yeah so um there were a lot of uh people in creative services i found who transitioned and actually even in the magazine and publications who transitioned in a similar way who came in thinking this is something freelance and it wound up turning into something more than that um Much you, know, you know it's you know it was it was a great department at that time there were a lot of very creative people and a lot of great ideas it's funny because nowadays i don't know if you've seen this but the creative services department is kind of known now more to fans than it ever was before because in all these documentaries they do about the wrestlers they show the concept sketches and the ideas for names and things they they have you seen this but the, no not at all they do they they will show like oh here were some ideas for razor ramon here were ideas for the undertaker here were ideas for stone cold and you know the fact is some of them were great some of them were terrible or silly or weird and so it's almost become like um like a campy you know, like, oh, my God, all those names that they had for Stone Cold, like Chili McFreeze and all these things that, that you know, that Ringmaster. kind of thing. Ring ma- well, Ringmaster was pretty bad and they used it. So I know I did. the So when I started working for Mike, we were doing we, you know, the art bank wasn't a thing yet. So he came up, you know, he came up with the concept of all that and we started putting everything together. So before that, there were illustrations, character illustrations, and logos that people had done and made stats of. And they were on boards with cover sheets and the whole bit. And we'd send the stats out to licensees. And then start everything started to get computerized. Well, when I when I was, you know, 94 was an sort of a transition period from going from stats into doing actual computer art. And I started doing different uh, talent logos. I I was in merchant. Well, we'll backtrack a little bit. I was in merchandise for a while. So when I was, when I was freelance for, for a while, I did t-shirts talent and it was it was kind of cool going out into um, town and seeing some of the shirts that i did on people it's like hey i did that shirt you know are there some that you could mention that fans from those days might really remember well there was there was a hunter hearst helmsley shirt that i did that just had h and a three oh i remember that one power yeah, H to the third power. If you tell me you did the yellow Razor Ramon shirt, I'll love you forever. Because <laughs> no, that was that was no, a masterpiece. I had, I had to re- I recreated the um, hot rod shirt. 
because oh, okay. there was no color art of that. That was just like stats and and stuff. So I recreated recreated that, and a lot of a lot of the shirts got, you know, it's like got paid eight hundred bucks a shirt. So it was pretty pretty decent money when you're doing like five or six shirt a, shirts a week, and then billing for that. But wow, you know, okay, I had, had to no pay taxes idea. out of all that and all the all my expenses and everything. So, so wait a minute, you were at so the designers were getting a cut of the shirt sales that they designed. No, no, that was right off. That was what I was paid to design a shirt. Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. okay, because there was a lot of. I remember when I was there. And I remember Donna Goldsmith in oh, yeah. Consumer Products. She put an end to this. And at the time, I was kind of annoyed. So if Donna ever hears this, because look, there was a lot of, at least on my side of things, there was a lot of double dipping. Like, for example, um, I'm working in publications. I'm a magazine writer, editor, or maybe I write for the website. Um, there might be a trading card set that a licensee is doing, Fl Fleer mm -hmm. or whoever, with WWE, they'll say, oh, yeah, we have a writer in who works here, me, who can write the copy for these cards. And I, when I would do that, if it was for a licensee, I would get paid separately by the licensee. I, I might get like $25 a card, and that adds up. I remember there was a time where I, between all the licensed products and programs and extra things that I was doing, um, it was like an additional 25% on my salary. And finally, Donna Goldsmith in Creative Services, she clamped down on it. She said, company employees, if if they work for licensees, they cannot double dip. They cannot get paid separately. And I remember I was just like, yeah, it's easy for someone to say who's like one of the most well compensated people in the entire company who has all right. the stock options and things. You know, I'm a young guy in my 20s with little kids trying to, you know, get ahead. And boy, that really burned me at the time. That was a yeah. it was a golden goose for a few years. It was. Yeah. So I was a freelancer for like five years. Out of the what, 11 that I worked there. So it was it was a good gig. Right. So then I was I was hired in. I guess that would be 97. 90, full-time hired. Yeah, full-time right. hired. And I did the full tour, even though I'd been working there for five years. When you got hired, they'd give you like the handbook <laughs> and like a folder of welcome to the company and all, all this stuff, which I already had because I designed it. <laughs> and so I went on the whole tour and went up to Vince's office and saw Vince and said, hey. <laughs> hey, good to see you. <laughs> did he so, have, well, um, did he, because, you know, I, I remember from talking with Mike, Mike Foley, who yeah. I think started in 90. Um, yeah, he, I, he started over on Summer Street. Right, on Summer Street. That was the old offices in Stanford before the big Titan Tower that everybody knows that they're now leaving behind. But right. Mike has told me, from when he started there in those early years that Vince and Linda were very hands-on with creative services. Yes. Did oh, you yeah. see that when you were there too? Like they were, they like knew everybody like that kind of thing before it got so big in corporate, you know? Well, I was, uh, let's see. I was at the tail end of this guy named Osbert de Arce. 
Do you remember that name at all? I would remember that name, and I don't. Okay. So what was it again? Say that again. Osper de Arce. No, definitely not, but that is a great, great name. Yes, and you probably came under Jim Bell. Jim was there. Uh, okay. Yes, I started in 2000 in February. Actually, oh, that Valentine's Day 2000. You talk about Thanksgiving 94. For me, it was Valentine's Day 2000. That was my first day. Yeah. Okay. It seems, geez, it seems like we've known each other forever. Well, you but know, that Andy, a, that that's 23 years. years. 23 years ago, though. I mean, we have known each other forever. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. But, you know, when we were working, it just seemed like we'd known each other forever anyway. Right. It's like when you're there, it just feels like you've been there 100 years, even if you haven't. It's because... You know, it's a lot of work. Like one thing I always tell people about being there, I don't know if this was your experience, but it's like I always found they pay well for, for the work, for the for mm -hmm. the positions and things. If you compare to other companies and things, they yes. pay well. But the amount of work that they then expect from you is far beyond what it would be in that role in any other place. So it's True. like at, at the end of the day, you start to think like, even though they pay well, they really should probably be paying me even more, you know? Exactly. So but it's, you know, you feel like you work there a year. It feels like five years, you know? Yes. Well, maybe that's why it seemed like we worked together for like 10 years. Yes. Because each day was, was like two days. That's it's sort of, sort of like sort of like in the jerk where it's like, yeah, well, that day seemed like, like five minutes. And, and I want <laughs> other day was like three days. Yeah, it was like that. Every day is like a, like two days. And I want to say, too, because I've had when I have people on here from corporate, it tends to either be it's people that I from my own department. I've done that a lot. Publications yeah. or even dot com. And the other department that I'm most likely to have people from is creative services. Like I haven't had anybody from accounting or oh, finance or human well, they, resources they were in windowless offices on the interior of everything right. we got all the windows and part of it was they had almost no connection with the you know the tv product and the other part was our departments were were very close that we were like especially in the early years that i was there we were almost like sister departments like when i was oh, hired yes. yeah we were right yeah we were right down the hall from each other right when i was hired it was not just barry werner who was the publisher and publications it was debbie bonanzio yes they yeah, head of creative yes right head of creative he was there and brad sagendorf was like the production guy yes and they all interviewed me all those people you mentioned interviewed me yep. and when i started technically technically i was a proofreader for creative services and barry yes. kind of Barry kind of like glommed on me and just claimed yes. me for publications. Well, right. It's like Barry Barry saw the potential in you and Mike Foley saw the potential in me. Same sort same sort of thing. So we have had parallel parallel paths, so to speak. So But I, I would always visit you guys. That's the thing too. A lot of um, you know. People make fun and say, Well, weren't you guys ever working? And I guarantee you we were working. But I know like in my process, even to this day, the way I work is I get up, I walk around, I think to myself, if there are people there, I go, even in other companies, I've done this. Mm -hmm. And so I and other people, I used to routinely, I would get up, I'd walk over to creative services, I talk to whoever was around, you, right. uh, Dave Barry, Mike oh, Foley, yeah, 
you yep. know, like, like Debbie, who, whoever was there, uh, Bear, remember Bear? Oh yeah, I w- I would in the cave because he was in the cave, right? Yes, yes. I, he had this he had this big dark office that they called the cave, and he was Bear, and so all those people, Andy, um, I oh, would always yes. I would always go down there and just Chris Gilman mm-hmm. just shoot yep. the shit oh. with people. So that's how we all knew each other. Yeah, Chris Gilman is still one of the funniest people I've ever met. <laughs> Chris Gilman, for people that listen to this and were readers of WWE magazine, you remember that, that Gilman had a cartoon in our monthly magazine. So people yes. might know that name because of the cartoon that ran in WWE magazine for years. For years. Gilman's Corner. That's what it was called. Yes. Gilman's Corner. I should have him on here. Yes. Oh, definitely. But when you started now, I wanted to ask you this. Um, yeah. At that time in 94, when you were just freelance, um, it was not a great time for the company oh, business-wise. No. Did you have a sense oh, of that it, when it, you were? It was like, you know, it's like the ship had hit the iceberg and it was slowly sinking. They would spend like half a million dollars on a show, on like a house show to make five grand. Hmm. Like five grand profit, they would make over the cost. Yes. Yeah. So yeah. WrestleMania for like say for WrestleMania eleven, they probably made twenty five thousand dollars when all said and done. Wow. It was not a good time at the company. It was I- it was absolutely awful. And I every day, I didn't know whether I would be let go or asked to leave. It was a ver- very very tense time all over the company we had to wear ties like we're in creative services why are we wearing ties that makes no sense to me but we had to because it was company policy if the company's doing bad everyone's got to look good and i think in that time weren't wasn't that even the period where they were cutting corners on like office supplies and things oh yeah oh yeah crazy it's crazy to think Yep. And I think they even had it. It was a very very tight ship and no one got raises for years. Right. So I was was at the same pay rate for like four years. Wow. I have nothing to complain about. That happened to me for like two years and I was like fighting mad. But four years. um, Yeah, because I mean, I think I can't remember what year it was. It might have been more than one year. But in that mid 90s period, it was the only time to this day that the company ever had a losing year where yes. they, where they oh, lost it, it, money. I mean, Oh, it know. lost, it yeah. lost a lot. And there was, you know, it, that, that was when the um, Monday night wars were going on and Ted Turner was winning with WCW and Vince was furious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, man, sure. this is baby, right? He only built this thing from scratch in some little arena outside of Boston or some such thing, and then sort of made it big when they did WrestleMania. And it's like, oh, hey, we're making some money. Let's uh, keep doing this. And things were great until like 92, and then like the bottom dropped out after the, oh. Well, there were scandals going on too around that time. So 94, okay, that was the year that, the um, Jerry McDevitt um, 
exonerated Vince from the steroid scandal. Right, right. Yeah, he was freaking annoyed, right? Yeah. But that was like huge because it damaged the company for years, years. Didn't really recover until I did that ringmaster logo. <laughs> yeah that's what did started, it it started to pick up that's well well you had the right guy but maybe it wasn't the logo that did it you know <laughs> definitely yeah. not so you know the the royal rumble was at 96 yeah yeah with that's with where Shawn michaels Austin. won it yeah Shawn michaels yeah Shawn michaels won that and uh steve was um wrestling jake the snake you know mid card no big deal right oh yeah you're talking about king of the ring 96 oh king of the ring yeah 96. yeah when, when he did the austin 316 promo yeah yeah and if you watch that promo with with doc it's just it's just this rambling is he's like furious rambling thing and it was like huh wow he's really mad and just like <laughs> Austin 316 came out of that. Um, a bunch of little, like little catchphrases came out of that interview. Yeah, that's the bottom line, right? Yeah, and that's the bottom line because Stone Soul said so. That was that changed the direction. It's like that 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 interview changed the direction of the company from absolutely, absolutely. almost sinking and declaring bank being bankrupt and laying everybody off. To all of a sudden, over the uh, louds, over the uh, intercom system, uh, the C the CFO, like at lunchtime, probably later later that year, like in June, made the announcement: we are we have made a profit of eight million dollars as of today. And people were, there was a cheer that went up that was audible because everyone was worried that the bottom was going to drop out. Right. I mean, if it kept going that way, they, oh, they were yeah. they were even rumblings. I don't know how much credence I put in it, but there were even rumblings where Vince was saying they were going to like temporarily close down to try to save money yes. and just stop. And try and start yeah. up again at a certain time. So was that right, really yeah. on They'd the table? Have to declare bankruptcy. Right. It was at that point. It was like then. But I remember that. I mean, I saw that live on TV. You know, the, the Austin three sixteen. And at the time, you know, I was in. I was like mm, from grad around college age, graduating college, yeah. and I was following all through the bad years. And I remember definitely, it was just something very different. You could feel it. It was more visceral and real. And mm -hmm. I, rem I yes. remember thinking, wow, this is different. This this promo, like where he's going with it, the realness of it, the intensity of it. And, like you know, even though technically the attitude stuff didn't really get kicked off for another year or two after that. Right. But I always point that, to that, that moment. That's like the that, seed of it. Right. There. Exactly. That was that was the the point. That. You know, we didn't realize in time, but looking back, you know, hindsight being 2020, that was the interview that changed the fortunes of the company. Now, I have a question for you, and it's something that I'm going to see if maybe you could confirm for me. It's a crazy story from that time. 
And I okay. think I may have told it. I wasn't there at the time, but I heard it from other people. And I think I may have told this story either on this show or on some other podcast appearance. But the beginning of 97 is all time low in terms of TV ratings and things. And I think it was February 97 where they had a rating that was like under 2.0, which today would be just another week. But back then it was like the end of the world. And I right. remember hearing a story. This was at the time when they still had the old block logo, right? And the company mm-hmm. still was sort of in that phase of like kitty entertainment, kind of. And I had heard a story that Vince called a meeting, and I guess there were creative people in it. And he was on the warpath, I guess, because of the ratings and things. And what he focused on, and this is where the Scratch logo came from, was changing the entire look and style and approach of the company and being more edgy and ballsy and in your face. And what I had heard, because if you look at the Scratch logo, right, it just literally looks like a scribble of a WWF logo, like just scribbled, like scratched into something, which is why they call it that. Now, I had heard that Vince in his furious anger that I guess there was a whiteboard or something that he took a marker and just scribbled out this angry scratch logo. And that on the bottom of the logo, he drew a pair of, of, and forgive me, kids, a pair of hanging balls hanging down (laughs) from the logo, a pair of hairy hanging balls. Cause he was like, you know, I want my company to have balls and that the, the creative people, you know, they had to talk Vince down from the ledge and they were like, Vince, we like the idea. We like the edginess, the attitude. We can do that with, you know, we're never going to get away with having balls on the logo. So, but, but that was where the, you know, underneath the WWF, there's like that little swoosh, that little, whatever they call it, that that was there in place of where the balls had been. Now, (laughs) is there any truth to this insane story? I've never heard that before, Brian. (laughs) I'm telling you, this was told to me and I wish I could remember who it was. Maybe it was Foley, Mike Foley. Maybe maybe Foley was there. That sounds like something that would happen up in Vince's office. Right, right. It was, I, I think it was a small group it wasn't yes. like he was addressing, you know, the entire department. It was right. with the real kind of like think tank brain trust. Yes. And yeah. he so, was just so probably mad probably, as hell. Probably Deb, Deb Bonanzio was up there. Probably Deb J and Foley, Donna Goldsmith. And, you know, pe- people like, you know, those guys. I was just like a lowly guy, right? Right. But I mean, you never heard at the, of at the time. I was relative close guy. But so see, I, like that would be a story that would make the rounds, though, even if you weren't in the room. Right. Yeah. Uh, from what I understand of how 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 all that came about was Vince went to MTV. And visited MTV and all of a sudden the dress code relaxed. Mm. Of course, the company's profitable now. So, hey, ties come off. Every day is casual Friday, right? And Vince started wearing that, the um, turtleneck that said <laughs> raw yes. on one side, right? That came from going to MTV. And he had seen how MTV changes their logo all the time. Yes. It's never right. the same twice, right? So he said, hey, why don't we do that with our logo? Okay. Hey, let's do that. So, like, there were 
several comps done by every everyone creative and over at TV with Bill Gertel and his team. And we put them all together, presented them to Vince, and he liked the Scratch logo with the, what they call the swoosh, which was basically just a Nike logo turned the other way. To, to give it a little bit of weight because it's this scratchy yeah, kind of logo. Yes. Just the block just logo didn't have the swoosh on it. Yeah. Right. The, the original one just had, um, it was just scratchy, and then it had World Wrestling Federation in American Typewriter. Oh, yes. I remember that. Yeah. And then there, there were the transition logos, which were the scratch logo around the block logo, which was white. I remember that the magazine had that for a while, and I yes. always assumed it was because... Um, you know, the block logo, the old school, like metallic logo, it was very heavy. It was very strong. Yes. It had a, a, a lot of weight to it. So on a magazine cover, it popped. And I always thought it was, there was a fear. There had to be a fear that that scratchy logo, which was a little bit wispier, a little bit less yes, defined, very. That it, it might not pop off a magazine cover. It, so they had to sit it inside of the block logo, right? Well, that was a transition logo. Ah. So. There was a there was that scratch logo and then the the block logo so that it it eased people into just having that that scratch logo uh, be the whole thing. I also remember, and you you have to remember this in about ninety five ninety six before the scratch logo existed, there was a different version of the old school block logo where it wasn't, it was the block logo shape, but it wasn't metallic anymore. And it was kind of turned about 45 degrees to the left on its side. Yeah, that was, that was the new generation. Yeah. And they started, Jim Bell started doing licensing shows and they played EMF. What, you know, that, um, the EMF song, that goes whoa yes unbelievable yes unbelievable yeah. unbelievable whoa that, oh yeah. i listened to that <laughs> right three yep. days great <laughs> like it was just on loop so i'm sorry that happened to you andy yeah well you know i started going to licensing shows and <laughs> and escorting talent around and doing all this sort of stuff we were in some dank dark room to begin with and then we you know, it, we were in some back room at the Javits Center, and then things started really taking off when the company went profitable, and you know, Stone Cold sort of blew up onto the scene, and you know, this juggernaut of a talent guy, and then right around the same time, Dwayne the Rock Johnson showed up as Rocky Maivia. Yeah, he came talk, in about talk, six talk months. Talk about a light, a light sort of um, wimpy dude whose legacy is like phenomenal, right? <laughs> right. And to have them both at the same time, I mean, that really is something. Yeah. That's incredible yeah. because either, either one of those guys could have potentially done it on their own to have them both, you know. So, you know, I used, well, I used to eat rock, or I used to eat lunch with, with, with Dwayne. And he would be up in the lunchroom when I'm eating lunch and we just sit there and talk. Right. 
Yeah. And he was like from Miami State or something like that and played football. Or yes, yeah, the Hurricanes. Some right. such thing. I didn't really pay attention to that. <laughs> but, you know, we'd sit there and eat lunch and talk and, and chat and get to know each other. And we invited him to go to paintball with us one one year. And his, he said, yeah, I don't think my wife will let me do that. It's like, damn, that would have been great. <laughs> but we tried. You know, it's funny. Um for people that don't know and weren't there that are curious about these things with the cafeteria, you know, um, and I'm sure they had it right up to the end, but on the, it was on the second floor, right? Yep. There was a really what, what you could call a commissary. Yes, it was, it was, it was relatively subsidized by, by the company. So food was relatively inexpensive and it was still good. But you'd walk in there to have lunch and sit down with your friends or whatever, and you never knew who you might see in there. You know, you know, because obviously the talents on the road, they're not really in the office building, but every now and then they are for whatever reason. Right, Maybe there's a meeting. And- they've come up from Memphis working with Jerry Lawler, and they've they've come up to the show in quotes. Right. And they're working over there's a ring over at the TV studio at Ned. Hamilton Avenue. So Tracks. there's a whole workout place. So they're starting to actually hone their personas to what they may be when they're they're on Ross Smackdown or a pay-per-view, what have you. And so Dwayne was one of those guys. And it was, you know, they gave him Rocky Maivia, which is like classically horrible, right? Yeah, but and then, then, yeah, I mean, I know they were trying to go for his legacy and the third generation right, but, thing. You know, come on, man. You know, he's in, wearing turquoise and he's got that like, like stovepipe haircut. <laughs> it was ridiculous then. It's ridiculous now. It's even more ridiculous now. Well, so, it all worked out, right? Yes, it, it worked out for the best. He saw he saw um, that he could actually work the crowd even better as his larger than life persona as the rock. And I think that was WrestleMania 12. Uh, maybe 13. 13? Um, that was where he wrestled the Sultan and he had his dad in his corner for, I think like yes. the only time they ever did that. Probably. Yeah. yeah. Oh, thir- 13 was also, the, I think it was the Brett Stone Cold match. Yes, that was the one. That was the one where where Steve gets a cut in his head and he just rams his head into the mat and it's bleeding and he has blood all over him. One of the best matches I've ever seen. It was, it was like we were at a party and everyone's like talking, blah blah blah, you know, having a good time, blah blah blah, talking, blah blah blah. And that match came on. And it was like oh. What's this? Yes, absolutely. Whoa, that's something. That's one of those matches that I feel like you can show even to people that don't follow wrestling and they'll be pulled into it and engaged. Exactly. I've actually seen that happen. Yeah. It was one of the best matches that I've ever seen. And I'm just like, you know, even though I worked there for 11 and a half years, I'm just, I was just a casual fan, right? Because I have to stay. I have to stay objective about anything. I can't. I can't 
just mark out on everything, right? You got to be professional all the time. So we were watching that and it was just like, oh, hey. Still, I still remember it, right? So after that, they, uh, Jim Bell said, hey, let's make a video of that. Just that match. That's it. And then different promos that Steve has done up to that match. Like from King of the Ring with the, the um, seminal promo of where all the catchphrases came from to that WrestleMania 13 match. It was called um, Blood from a Stone or something like that. Sure. Yep. First, first home video that the company released in-house. Before that, they were doing Coliseum Video. Right. And it's like Thursday is Coliseum Video Day or Tuesday is Coliseum Video Day. And they would like bring huge bags of popcorn and chocolate mixed together. That's like five pounds of this junk every month. And, you know, the designs of those were just hideous all the time. They have their fans, as 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 I true, under, as, true as that I may be. There's, a certain, that. there's some nostalgia around those, but but I'm not I, disagreeing I under, with you. I understand that <laughs> when home video started in house, Jim, Jim Bell like kicked it off with uh, Blood from a Stone, which I think they sold you know thousands of those, and they were like, "Hey, we've got something here," so they got rid of Coliseum Video. And started bringing videos in house, and I was put in charge of home video. So from the very from the so Cliff Cliff did that one because Cliff, Cliff Hall, yeah, the blood from the stone. Okay, yeah, Cliff Hall. Then I started do I started doing the second one. I have, you know, have all the stuff up in the garage and we, they brought in this guy named Robert Mayo, who basically he, he and I basically built the home video department from basically nothing aside from Jim Bell having Cliff do the blood from the stone. So we started, do, we released five videos the first year. And geez, well, you, pro you probably have them like on a shelf right behind you. I may I, have I, some. Yeah, it's, it's, it's been, what, 30 years? Now? 25 or a little more. Yeah, yeah. 25 yeah. or 30. So I think we released something like 75 different titles over the course of the eight years that I did that. And also that was around the time too. people that don't know would be interested to know that hillbilly Jim, Jim Morris, oh, he, oh. <laughs> he, he was a sales rep, right? He was a sales rep in home video. Oh yes. Oh man. We were, well, wow. We had a, wow. Yeah. Hillbilly Jim. Wow. That really take, that takes me back to a very happy time in my life. What a nice man. Oh man. He, he, talk about larger than life but one of the kindest men i've ever met yes yes he was he was magnanimous he was hilarious and supportive in any anything that you wanted to do he was like 
go for it. Yeah. So by 98, we had sold enough videos that we had gone uh, for the, there was this trade show called the VSDA, Video Software Dealers Association. So this is where all the mom and pop shops, video stores went to buy their, to see their, the different things that were coming out from like straight to video things like femalian <laughs> to, yeah, that was rest, <laughs> rest in peace to that entire uh, industry. Sadly, what a shame. Right? Yeah. It was like the last year of it. So 98, my 30th birthday, I spent in Vegas. Not it bad. was like it, epic best birthday ever. <laughs> it's uh, tough to beat, you know, now I'm 55 and it's like, yeah, that one stands out as like the best. Nothing's going to beat that. And, and wanna, yeah. Oh, so we were out there with Hillbilly Jim and he wanted to get me a tattoo. <laughs> Which I, I never, I never, you know, took him up on, but he was pretty insistent which was funny. So he would go out with like Sable and Mark Miro and see the fluffy white tigers of, of Zigfield and Roy and all that sort of stuff. It was, it was a lot of fun out there. And then and when we got back, Robert was asked to do what he had done over the past year and a half again. And he told, he told the, he told Donna Goldsmith and and Vince and you know the powers that be. It's like I don't think I can do that because we've put forth our strongest stuff, and you know it went from zero to like a hundred percent in like six months. And they wanted to have they wanted him to double that again, okay. and. Yeah. So that's why you got to start small, right? You don't want to, you don't want to get those expectations all the way up well, there. That's a well, lesson you learn. Well, it's, you know, that's, that's the thing is that it's, it's never enough. It's like, well, right. you know, we're, we're burning the candle at both ends. We're driving the wheels off this thing. And we've got like almost no money to make anything with. The budgets are almost zero. So we're scrimping and saving as much as we can every every place we can to make more profit and squeeze as much profit out of every every little thing. And after like two years, it sort of run its course, right? So then we started doing box sets, the WrestleMania box set. Oh man, that was freaking epic. Um, are you talking of, about the 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 DVD anthology box set? Because I have that on my shelf here, and it's beautiful. It's the one that came out. It actually came out in 05, and it has the first 20 WrestleManias on it, I think. It's like yes. a black there's box. That. There's that. But I had to recreate all of the original posters from scratch. Like rescan, getting stuff rescanned. Uh, from WrestleMania one, all the way up till like ninety two, because then things were more digitized. So 
Yeah, that that was an epic, epic, epic job. So uh, it, we did the we started with VHS set, which was this enormous WrestleMania. I think it was in 2000 we did okay. that. So it ended with WrestleMania 2000. And that took probably like six months to do. Because, every, you know, every everything had to be, recre like I said, recreated from scratch, from WrestleMania 1 to 92, uh, which was, 92 wasn't that 93,163 fans, 173 fans at, at Pontiac Silverdome. That was WrestleMania three in eighty seven, actually. Oh, whoops! Well, <laughs> no, but ninety two. My, was... my memory's failing, but you know, I remember seeing that photo there in Creative but... Services all the time that Tom Buchanan took. Yes, that's the one Tom Buchanan took. Oh, I've talked to him about that. Just how yeah. they let him climb all over the roof and everything. But ninety two, yeah. I believe, was in another stadium. I think that was the Hoosier Dome in Indianapolis, if I'm oh, not mistaken. Okay. So that was another. That was a big one too. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I wanted to say also, because especially uh, this has to be mentioned, you know, before we, we run out of time or anything, but because it, it also connects to work that I did. We've talked about this. The last thing that you worked on is something oh, that's, yeah. it, it's still in use today. It is the logo for the WWE the Legends logo. Yeah, the Legends logo. And for people that have seen it, you know, it's like that. It's like sort of like a shield or like a crest. Yes. Right. And it yep. has, and it was has used the has the original Chrome logo. Yes, that actually Paul Megliari did back in, geez, right around the time that Vince was fifty. That would have been ninety five. Yep, I did his fiftieth birthday card too. Oh, how nice! Yeah, it was <laughs> it was delightful. But that it, logo... it was actually funny because we took all the the um, the pay per view vote uh, logos. And made them Vince specific. <laughs> so it was like instead of WrestleMania, it was Vincelmania. I hope that he appreciated just, it. Just ridiculous. Yeah. And everyone in the company signed it. Oh, wow. And well, it was, it was back, it, back when you could do that, right? Yeah. It was like, it was enormous. A lot of fun. But the, but that logo, now the Legends logo, the first thing that it was used on was my book, my book, oh. WWE Legends. <laughs> yes. Yeah, which came out in 2006. Now, the funny thing about that is I really believe that that is the, the only reason that that book got greenlit is just because it coincidentally happened to have that title and they were pushing the new Legends program and they had a brand new Legends logo and they were going to have yep. all these Legends contracts. Because I right. pitched the idea for that book in 2003 and wow. wrote it because it was when Simon and Schuster, when they were looking to put out a book every month, you remember that yes. they were like desperate for ideas. And so they greenlit it because they were desperate. And then it just sat on a shelf for years. And I really think the only reason they eventually put it into production was they said, oh, it's called WWE Legends. Great. We have this new WWE Legends program. Perfect. We can kick it off that way. Because all of yep. a sudden it got like moved into quick production and it was out by it was out actually after you were gone in early 2006 is when it came out. I think February yeah. 06. But you created that logo. Oh, yeah. That was uh, literally that was the last thing that I did. I was like, hey, we need to do this logo. 
All right, here, I'll do a couple comps. Hey, we like this one. Let's do that. Perfect. And it what was what was great, one of the great things of of being there for the, all those years of going from nearly, you know, company nearly going bankrupt to being, you know, going gangbusters for years was just being basically being along for the ride, you know, and growing up with the comp with the company and taking care of all that video stuff was fan was absolutely fantastic. I'm still friends with a lot of the people that I worked with. And every once in a while I wake up in a cold sweat and realize, oh hey, I don't have to go to work today. <laughs> It was a lot of pressure a lot of times. No question oh, about it. All the it. time. There were times we were working until midnight. We were really protected for years uh, by having Barry. Barry was like a barrier for us. When he was terminated, because he had his mm -hmm. conflicts with Shane McMahon, unfortunately. Yeah. When that happened, we then we really understood what it was like to be exposed. Because, look, Shane was an, a nice guy. He really was yes. and is. Oh. But we started getting a taste then of what it's like really working for the McMahons, you know, because Shane, as nice as he was, he was also a proxy for Vince and it right. was like Vince moving through him. So uh, those were some rough times. And then we got a whole new management and it just even honestly got worse because they were all New York magazine people who were used to just burning the midnight oil and living, you know, right. their job was their whole life. And so it definitely became, a lot more arduous those last couple of years that I was there. Oh, ab absolutely. So I was, when I was let go in 2005, it was right after the WCW pay-per-view or ECW pay-per-view. Sorry. Yes. One night stand. Yes. Which was epic, right? Loved, amazing. So we, we watched that and Andy Liveron and I come in, we're like gung ho to like, it's like finally something good is happening here. Oh man, we're this is this is great. Because towards the end of everything, we had to send out the DVD and the DVD packaging the Friday before the event, or like a week before the event. So we had to have the advanced card, and we always put card subject to change because it would always change. So I got I we got to be such a well-oiled machine doing doing these DVDs and stuff that we were able to wait until Monday morning to get the correct card and send it out. And it was like done by the next Monday. Took a week, week turnaround. Craziness. Absolutely insane the turnaround time of stuff that we do. Like we get in. Um, walking to work on like Friday. Oh, you need to do a video ad for Walmart and Target and like all these different people. And it's like, hmm. By then we were supposed to be getting creative briefs with copy and everything. Never got that. It's like, hey, you need this ad? Okay. Done. There you go. And it's like, we'd get stuff done like two or three hours that we used to take like a week to do. So time got compressed considerably yes. while uh, from, from 94 to 2005. 
And we were a well-oiled machine by that point. And things were just like flying out the door and barely any mistakes because, you know, we had you, we had uh, Liz McCollum, Aaron. Copy editor, yep. Writers all the, all those editors. guys. And uh, used to have to get everything through legal as well. Oh, yeah. So Ed Kaufman. Yes. Yeah. Ed, Ed, Lauren. And they're, geez, who else? Bernadette. Oh, wow. Yes. That? These are names. That's, that that's going back, back, right? Yep. 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 Yeah, that was that was a lot. That was a lot of fun. But what um, happened? You know, I look, mean, looking back, it's like, man, I'm surprised I survived all that because it was just nonstop. And we would, you know, Mike Mike Foley and I, we'd be working on this licensing show for like three or four months. And the last licensing show, Andy and I had probably worked for like a month and a half. And then we were called into HR and it's like, who's there? Not you anymore. So they let seven of us go all at the same time. So creative services got gutted yes. of all their top people or what we thought were their top people and actually were their top people. So uh, I had to sign a non-disclosure, non-compete form and all this stuff, but I still had to be available to consult the new people that came in for six months. Oh God. Isn't that great when they make you train your replacement? Well, um, they didn't even tell me that I was doing that in publications, but I eventually figured out that I was doing that and I was still there full time, full time. Yeah. Um, that I, I was never training. trained my replacement. Yeah. I was training like my, my re replacement, replacement like, had just graduated college. Like, a month before never met him so there's like a de facto thing i think i i think i wrote this on one of one of your posts for um shut up and wrestle and it was you know there's sort of an unwritten rule at world wrestling at the time that you either earned x x or you hit 40 and then they showed you the door so if you yes. earned too much before you were 40, they'd show you the door because all of a sudden they feel that what the, the, what you're doing is not as valuable as hiring someone with no experience in the whole company of what's going on from day to day to be able to do the job at the drop of a hat and just get stuff done and, get it out the door and make it absolutely perfectly correct. Yeah. They start to look at it as, you know, they could pay somebody a lot less, less to do the exact same thing, right? They could kind of pay them whatever they were paying you when you first started, you know, just go back to the right. beginning again and start over. Absolutely. And, yeah, and what, so they'd pay them like, it's like, when I started, I was making more than like 25 grand a year. Right. I was making like, Let's say 36, right? Because it was 18, 18 an hour, which was cheap at the time back in 94. That's inexpensive. And as, as I worked up the corporate ladder and become a creative director, you know, I had stellar reviews year after year after year. There were times that um, the my bonus when when I finally was an employee, 
The bonus was half of what my wife's salary was. Holy moly. Just the bonus. My salary almost doubled in the seven years that I was there. And I know oh, some yeah. people mine more, did. Mine more than doubled. Yeah, some people did like, way better than that. Absolutely. Oh, but, yeah. I, 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 was, I, I was very fortunate to work there for 11 years. And our, our departments suffered similar fates. What happened to creative services in 2005, like you say, the big bloodletting where we were like mortified because you guys were all of our friends. Um, yes, exactly. And like like I said, you know, it's like we would come down and it's like, you know, hey, it's like, well, you and I, you and I were very, are very interested in the history of the whole thing. Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Because that's part of the entire, the entire organization that they tend to ignore. Right. Especially back then. They've yes. become a little yeah. bit better about their history in recent years. Not great, Good. but better than it was back then. And yeah, yeah. you know, you feel you, you start to feel unappreciated after a certain point, especially, and I'm, I'm not going to name any names, but, you know, in the cases of both departments, but I mean, I was there with what happened in creative services, in my opinion, and the opinion of many, the people that then came in were not as competent as you guys had been. They didn't have the product knowledge. They didn't have the connections and things. It was just this typical thing that happens. Not It's not just WWE or wrestling. It's a corporate thing where they clean house. They bring in a new... What it really comes down to is they bring in a new department head, and then that person has to put their stamp on things. If they just leave everything the way it is because it's working great, well, that doesn't look good for them because then it looks like, well, why'd we even bring you in here? So they have to that change is. shit. And that's what happens. Just for the sake of change is right. not the way to do things. Yeah. And, yeah, and things it, have to change year over year. I get that because, you know, what's new and fancy, excuse me, and hot is what, drives the whole creative thing and what happened in always have, to, always have to be on like the cutting edge like well not the cutting edge but no trends that are happening out there and try and be slightly ahead of it yeah and i remember i would hear i would even hear some stories because what happened in 2005 to creative services happened to publications in 2006 mm -hmm. and i somehow survived it for an, another year before i shot myself in the foot through a variety i was just so angry and frustrated that i just started to get insubordinate it was really ugly like i they gave me the rope to hang myself with you know what i mean right. but i lasted another couple of years and i got to see like just the boneheaded decisions that were being made in your old department by the people running it sometimes oh. embarrassing kind of markish behavior that was going on oh, that yeah. never would have oh, gone absolutely. on when you guys were there like oh my god i'm gonna I'll say it, and I'm not going to mention the name, but just the, a person who was responsible for a lot of what happened in creative services. There was a story that he, Stone Cold Steve Austin, was coming to the office for some reason. He had to be there, and he was going to have a meeting with creative services for ideas. And this guy, if for people, do you know the story? Uh, for no. people that for people that may know or not, uh, still to this to, day, to this day, across the street from Titan Tower, there is what's called the Beverage Barn, right? Oh. This giant, like wholesale 
beverage store, which really is you go there if you want to buy cheap liquor and beer and everything. And, you know, and so uh, some late nights we would patronize that place. But so this guy, this creative head who apparently he wanted to impress Stone Cold because Stone Cold was coming to the office. He sent across the street. He sent somebody over there to get like a case of beer to bring it back so that when Stone Cold came there, he could like toast some Steve Weisers with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Never mind the fact that, look, I don't want to be a wet blanket or anything, but this is some of the most markish behavior you could ever engage in as somebody, a corporate head who's trying to work with talent and be taken seriously. But aside from all that, that was a period I don't think is still the case. But at that time, Austin was completely off alcohol his beer even on tv it was non-alcoholic beer so it was just an all-around it was it was emblematic of just how embarrassing things got in that department so that's what happened i remember having a a meeting with 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 steve austin in the in the conference room one of the funniest meetings that i've ever been to he it's it's like it was the time when Elian Gonzalez was all that stuff was happening in Florida. Oh yes, the the oh. boy that got repatriated to Cuba, right? Yes. All he all it's like all he could talk about was Elian Gonzalez, and it was just it's like Steve, you know, here we, you know, we're presenting this stuff with you, and we want to like have like this brainstorming thing, and he just kept going on about Elian Gonzalez and how worried he is, and it's wrecking his. life life and wow it was ridiculous absolutely ridiculous that's incredible i could almost picture it in my head like god damn that kid down in florida it's It's like cliff foley and i think deb were in that and we were just busting out laughing he he's he's one of the funniest guys absolutely he is just naturally hilarious so oh my god that was great and (laughs) i remember one of one of the other things that I, I remember seeing in the conference room was when Scott Hall, Kevin Nash. Oh, yes. I was going to bring this up. Yes, yes, yes. We're in the conference room and I'm walking to lunch and I look over and it's like, and as I'm walking away, I'm like, wow, hell is really frozen over because yes. that's the conference room. It, yes. it was like, what? What? I remember no, that day. Like, those guys left on horrible terms and they were never coming back. And, and you were there when they left, except for Hogan. I think he'd already been gone. But Oh, Hogan had been gone for years. Yeah. But you so you were there through all those Hall and Nash years and everything. All See, the, all that, yeah. Ray, that Ray was Ramon, um, Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels, all that, all that stuff. I remember <laughs> I was I was in the gym one day and this marketing guy came in. He's like, Hey, gotta get out of the locker room. It's like I'm getting dressed after working out, right? And it's like, okay, whatever. So in comes in comes Shawn Michaels and and uh, Hunter Hearst Helmsley in China. And what they did. <laughs> so they booted me out of the, the gym. They closed the gym and locked everything. So I think what, what I heard is that China shaved Shawn Michaels' ass 
so that when he was in Playgirl, he wasn't all hairy on his butt. And they so had she, to do that at the gym in the office? In the locker room. In the <laughs> locker room? locker room in the gym. It was like hilarious. Good grief. And there, there was another time when, when uh, Foley and I had to stay late because they wanted to have a uh, Lex, Luke, Lex Luthor centerfold. Lex Luger. TV. Yes, this is, this is, you know, okay, we're going way back. Um, yeah. So Mike and I stayed till like midnight or two in the morning to send this file over to Richie Posner at TV so he could print it. So they could put it in a magazine as a centerfold and then like rip the magazine up and throw it away. It was less than a second. And it took us like 10 hours to do this thing. Just wow. crazy. Now, to go back to the NWO thing, and I know we're going like over time, I'll wrap it up. But I have to say, because these are things that I remember so well, that was one of those surreal days where it's interesting. It was interesting for me to be working inside the machine as somebody who was a really big fan. And I'm trying to not do the kind of behavior that other people like that were doing, right? You want to be professional. You want to be professional, but inside you're going like, oh, my God. So I remember that was because I used to follow all the – I used to read the newsletters. I still do, the Wrestling Observer, or I'd be be on the websites. And on that day, I remember reading online the rumor that like any wrestling fan would have read to go to the same website. Kevin Nash, Scott Hall, and Hulk Hogan are going to be in the WWE corporate offices today in Stamford. And it was it was like late 2001, I guess, when they first brought yeah, them back right, in. Yeah, right around there. And all of a sudden, like, the light bulb went on over my head. And I'm like, holy cow, um, this is the building that I work in. And I am going to go and discreetly find out if this is really happening. And I wandered up to creative services just – acting like I had a reason to be there. You know, the cafeteria is nearby. I did. I had my friends were there. You always had a reason to be there. There's no excuse, right? It's like, you always have an excuse. Right. There's always a pretense to be there. My friends are there. So I'm walking down the hall and I pass that corner conference room, right? (laughs) On the corner, the door was like slightly ajar. Slightly ajar and you sort of glance in. So you, you did the same thing. But I paused there and I looked through and there they were. Nash, Hall, Hogan. By the way, looking very nonplussed and bored and not really wanting to be there, but which you think they would have been excited to be back. But anyway, but I stood there and I was a little bit like slack jawed, just in shock. And I stood there just a millisecond too long. And I remember they looked up and they saw me and it was sort of like, Oh, what's this guy doing standing there in the doorway? And then I was like, oh shit. And I started walking again, you know, back pretending to do whatever I had yeah. to do there. But it was like I was going up there to verify that what the dirt sheets were saying was really happening. Exactly. Yeah. What, what would have been funny is if you had like walked in, like just stuck your head in, oh, you're not the guys I'm looking for, and <laughs> just shut the door. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Andy, this has been magnificent. We could tell these stories all day. I'll have to I do it. Yeah, you know, it's like memories come flooding back. So I know it's funny. It's like the more we talk, the more all of a sudden it starts coming back. You know what I'd love to do? Yeah. I've been entertaining the idea of doing start to do like these panel episodes 
Oh, I, ha- I have the fancy premium zoom where you could have multiple people on. So I might have to have a bunch of you guys on. I, oh yeah. Yeah. That Deb, might be fun. Deb Foley, me, maybe my Andy liver on. He's got, you know, he's, I haven't, he's, he's the only uh, one of the people you've mentioned that I haven't had on yet, but Andy, I love Andy, but he's so oh, angry, yeah. you know, and he oh, hates, yes. He, yes. he's so angry. Andy, I love you, but you're so angry and he hates WWE so much. And I understand why, you know, I mean, uh, uh that, <laughs> I don't know. I don't want to traumatize him by having him on, you know. But oh I'd love no, to it's, have it's fine. You know, I, I, when, when we wanted to hire Andy, Mike, Mike came in. And he said, um, you know, Andy's asking for more than you make. And I said, I don't care. Hire him. He's excellent. He's just exactly what we need right now. He is. He, he's, he'll hit the ground running. He knows exactly what to do. And it'll make everything better. And it did for, geez, what, four or five years. Yeah, yeah. Andy Liverant, another great member of the amazing creative services department. I'll have to have him. I'll have to have you back. We'll we'll definitely do more. People love these creative services episodes. Yeah, it's, this has been a lot of fun. Memory lane. I wish I had had uh, a little bit more like stuff prepared for Next answering time. Yes, next time. I was going to write like a whole thing, but you know. The... No, you could break out some of the artwork next time. You know, we could yes, like, address definitely. specific not, items. I don't know where it all is. I have, a, I have a, all, the, all the videos and DVDs and all that stuff. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Andy. This has been great. Loved it. All right. All right, Brian. Thanks a lot. There you have it, folks. My conversation with Andrew Wilson, formerly of the WWF Creative Services team. I hope you guys enjoyed that. I hope you enjoy those kind of behind-the-scenes corporate stories of the history of the World Wrestling Federation. That's one of the reasons you come here to Shut Up and Wrestle each and every week. There's lots of other reasons that you come here, I'm sure. Um, I'll give you one for next week's episode, episode 95. I'm proud to announce will feature as my guest the host of Sirius XM's Busted Open, none other than Mr. David LaGreca. Dave LaGreca, my guest next week on Shut Up and Wrestle. You do not want to miss that episode. Lots of other stuff coming after that. Beyond that, I have a two-parter. That's right. We just couldn't shut up. A two-parter with Mike Sempervivi talking about the Wrestling Observer Newsletter Hall of Fame ballot for 2023. We are both voters on the ballot. We have a lot of ideas about it. The closing of voting is happening this month. So we put together this two-part episode, which I think you're going to love. I also have on the way longtime pro wrestling fan, Steve Dworkin, who also worked as an engineer for USA Network, has a lot of incredible stories about being a wrestling fan going back to the 50s and then later coming to work with the WWF and WWE. So I think you guys will enjoy that. Of course, our episode 100 coming up on the way. I'll have more info on that. So please do keep listening to Shut Up and Wrestle. Where can you find the show? Our website, of course, suawpod.com. You can also find it on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Podcast Addict, or wherever you find your podcasts. You can also join us in the Shut Up and Wrestle Facebook group, Shut Up and Wrestle with Brian R. Solomon. 
Additionally, some of the other projects that I work on. The Wrestling News from Arcadian Vanguard. You can get it at thewrestlingnews.com. Subscribe there. Also, go to the Arcadian Vanguard YouTube page. The books that I've written. Blood and Fire, the unbelievable real-life story of wrestling's original Sheik, as well as Superheroes, the history of a pop culture phenomenon from Ant-Man to Zorro. Get them wherever books are sold. I also have signed copies available. Reach out to me at brianrsolomon at yahoo.com, and we can talk about that. The magazines I write for, as mentioned at the top of the show, Inside the Ropes magazine, you can get it insidetheropesmagazine.com. Pro Wrestling Illustrated, you can get at pwi-online.com. If you're looking for me on social media, you can get me on Twitter and Instagram at Brian R. Solomon. There's also my author page on Facebook, Brian Solomon Writer. And on any of those social media platforms, you will find the link to my author website. If you are interested in supporting Shut Up and Wrestle, on my Twitter page, you will find a link at the top of my account that you can use to contribute via Cash App or Venmo. If you wish to contribute via PayPal, I am on PayPal at Solomon at yahoo.com. Shut Up and Wrestle is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. And as always, this has been Brian R. Solomon asking you to keep those cards and letters coming in and reminding you that the only way to eat an elephant is one bite at a time. So long, wrestling fans. <laughs>